The Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser is produced by the Pulte Institute for Global Development, an integral part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Pulte Institute works to address global poverty and inequality through policy, practice, and partnership, and is a catalyst for centers and faculty at Notre Dame to develop interdisciplinary research programs that address today's most pressing global development challenges. Learn more at pulte.nd.edu. Hello, and welcome to the Global Pathways podcast. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and today I'm joined by Stephen Feldstein, who is Senior Fellow within the Democracy, Conflict, and Governance Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C., where he focuses on issues of democracy, technology, human rights, U.S. foreign policy, and Africa. Previously, Steve served as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor Bureau in the U.S. Department of State, where he had responsibility for Africa policy, international labor affairs, and international religious freedom. And earlier, he was the Director of Policy at the U.S. Agency for International Development and also served as counsel on the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, where he oversaw U.S. foreign assistance programs, State Department management, and international organizations. In his recent book titled The Rise of Digital Repression, or How Technology is Reshaping Power, Politics, and Resistance, Steve documents how the emergence of advanced digital tools are bringing new dimensions to political repression around the world. Steve, I'm delighted to have you with us today to discuss this topic of digital repression and its major implications for democracies and civil society activists around the world. Well, thanks for having me on, Ray. I really appreciate it. It's nice to come back and have a conversation with you on, on issues that we've grappled with a long time in different ways and to think about how technology is really affecting conflict and human rights and politics worldwide. So maybe just to kind of begin the conversation and maybe give you an opportunity to kind of frame the overarching sort of meta message for the book, why don't you maybe just jump in by trying to answer the question, why this book and why now? Why is this important and why should we really be sort of focusing on this concept of digital repression? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of change that's happening around the world, I think. And I think part of this transformation, these disruptions I think they can be disorienting in terms of actually understanding better what do they mean, what are their implications, why are they important. And, you know, when we think about all the different ways that technology is affecting our politics, our society, what kind of choices we make, whether it's looking at elections and the effect of disinformation, whether it's looking at humanitarian crises and the effect of Internet shutdowns, or whether thinking about certain country contexts like China and how they're using different combinations of mass surveillance to really monitor and track individuals throughout the country. To me, it was really important to better understand in a more systematic way, how are these technologies being used? How are they interacting, shaping some of the larger trends that we're seeing, particularly when it comes to democracy and human rights ideas? And then once we better understand the problem set, how these trends are manifesting themselves, it can allow us then to think about solutions. It can allow us to think about ways to confront and channel and harness the more positive aspects when it comes to technology, as well as what kind of safeguards, what kind of guardrails are necessary for policymakers to think about, particularly in democracies, when it comes to the type of abuses that we've seen. And so I was particularly interested in understanding how trends are shifting when it comes to autocrats in authoritarian countries. And, and part of that is coincident with the fact that 
we are witnessing an authoritarian resurgence around the world. And so as we think about as democracies, how do we confront this trend, understanding the role of technology in terms of exacerbating this aspect, I think was really important. So that's kind of how I got to kind of broadly speaking, the kind of motivating factors for this book. One of the things I think was interesting is that if we reflect back a little bit, civil society was using technology probably for pretty much a good part of the 90s. And it was really, I think, into the 2000s and particularly around the Tahrir Square event when suddenly you saw a kind of a, a civil society uprising that overthrew a government and basically created mass chaos. And you basically saw the civil society empowered by technology. But at the same time, I think we became aware that there was a potential for governments then to kind of react for there to be a backlash. And I think after that, I think we began to see this, I think this trend that you're talking about. What did the dictators of the world or the autocrats of the world learn from Tahrir Square that maybe began this new period that I think you're writing about? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. So with Tahrir Square, many people kind of look upon the events of Arab Spring as this sort of signal moment, this high point for the idea of liberation technology, that technology could be used by democratic movements around the world to really push back and force accountability, if not change, when it came to longstanding dictatorships and authoritarian regimes. And, you know, what was interesting is just as different civil society movements were kind of looking upon what happened in Tahrir Square and saying, well, why not us? Why can't we do the same thing? This is a moment, an opportunity for us to mobilize in different ways. Governments were also looking upon what happened in Tahrir Square with a lot of trepidation and saying, well, is our turn next? What kind of lessons should we learn when it came to why Mubarak and his regime and you know the Tunisians and many others really failed when it came to understanding the immense amount of political support social media was able to challenge to threaten and take down these regimes. So what happened was that you know, a lot, of, a lot of states really started to internalize some of these lessons. And I think one of them was first, take social media seriously. That what seemed like something that was a nice offshoot or way for citizens to express sentiments, but didn't actually have any grounded reality to it, in fact, did have a very serious implication in political impact. And so one of the issues that governments thought themselves, well, okay, we need to actually see what citizens are, are saying on social media. We need to be able to track and watch that more closely. As we see different leaders or different individuals come about, we need to be able to pick them up if we need to, push back against them, discredit them. But we need to come up with a range of tactics, of tools in which to actually solidify and ensure that these new information and communication technologies won't swamp our ability to consolidate and perpetuate our governance. And so you've seen then as a result of that, a wide variety of tactics and ways that more sophisticated countries like China and less sophisticated countries like Uganda, when it comes to their technological capabilities, that they've tried to then think through what are the steps that we need to take so that Tahrir Square 10 years later doesn't occur in our country and undermine the apparatus that we have set up. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that viewed from within the human rights community or Freedom House or whatever, that the issue of closing civil society has been something I think that's been of concern for some time. But I think the digital element of it is the new dimension, the new phenomenon. You use this term digital repression, which I think is, a, I think, an apt term for what we're talking about. 
what does that actually mean for you? I mean, is it just the passage of a law which says, you know, you can't do X, Y, Z things? Or is it, is it more insidious than that? Are there more, a greater variety of ways in which digital repression is being enacted than we would perhaps be aware of? Yeah. Well, you know, I tend to think of it, broadly speaking, as a use of digital information and communications technology, oftentimes in conjunction with laws to undertake a series of different actions against citizens, to surveil them, to coerce them, to manipulate individuals or groups. But essentially, the bottom line is to deter specific activities or beliefs that challenge the state. Now, kind of within that broader framework of what, you know, the definition of digital oppression, I've really broken it down into sort of five techniques. Surveillance, which can be mass surveillance, but it could also be spyware. Censorship, oftentimes via the internet. Disinformation, so the use specifically of false propaganda or flooding to manipulate information. Internet shutdowns, the kind of severing of connectivity when it comes to uh, internet access of citizens, particularly during protests. And then the targeted persecution of online users. And this is particularly done or used against individuals who are viewed as being threats to the state, whether it's independent journalists or opposition challengers with an immense amount of followers behind them. And so that kind of is the broader terrain that I've looked at. But, you know, really, that's a whole host of things across the board. If we were sort of trying to look at this again, take your sort of five categories and we look at sort of patterns around the world and we were trying to be somewhat fair minded about how these things are being applied across both the more extreme autocratic states and maybe even the liberal democracies. You kind of what are we seeing? In other words, because you could say, you know, I could be in the UK right now and I could I'm being surveilled everywhere in terms of how they're using use of cameras in all sorts of locations. So we're all being surveilled, but I guess there's different variants on that in terms of how, how many of your categories of the five are being used and where and for, and for what purpose. So what are the sort of the patterns and maybe the drivers that are most present in the more extreme cases? No, you're right. I mean, I think one of the complicated things with technology is that in of itself, it's something that's neither good nor bad in that it is a tool that's used. And it really depends on the underlying system itself in terms of how leaders and governments choose to deploy those tools. So there are many legitimate ways that surveillance would be used, especially in a liberal democracy, where you have specific authorizations in the rule of law. And when there are abuses, you have a means to appeal or to seek remediation. And so the difference for that being that in a liberal democracy versus an authoritarian system, where let's say Turkey, where you have someone like Erdogan, the president of Turkey, who is using these tools to specifically persecute political opponents, right? Where the rule of law is not something that's objectively applied but used as an instrument to repress people who are trying to challenge his power, where elections are things that are rigged on a regular basis and that these technological tools are then used to manipulate the outcome. That to me is sort of the difference, which in, in other words really points to the underlying polit politics of a country really matters. And whether you're or not you're a democracy or an authoritarian state, that makes all the difference in terms of whether you're seeing a pattern of digital oppression, or whether you're seeing uses of technology that may or may not be troublesome, but have less of that kind of negative effect associated with it. So what are some things that perhaps you've kind of surfaced with the book in terms of these patterns or drivers that maybe would surprise us? In other words, the things that we, you know, we're aware that, you know, in China, people are being surveilled and Russia, these technologies are being used, but there's a lot of places where this is happening that perhaps are going to be new, and you probably have kind of mapped the world in this, in this regard. What would surprise us in terms of what's going on today that would, you know, we don't know about? Yeah. 
No, you're right. So I would say one of the conclusions I found, which was not surprising, was that there's a very strong relationship between the use of digital repression tools generally and the level of autocracy in a country. So the more authoritarian a country, the more it it would rely on traditional techniques of locking up opposition members and civil society activists and persecuting journalists and so forth, the more likely it is that they would use these digital techniques. But what I found was that democracies, particularly weak democracies, represent a real battleground and struggle for where these techniques are being used to pretty large effect. And so one of the case studies I did in my book was the Philippines. And what's interesting with the Philippines is that you don't have a lot of surveillance. You don't have a lot of censorship as well. So you have a pretty freewheeling, open environment. But what you do see a significant level of is disinformation. And so essentially what Duterte, who is a freely elected leader in the country, what he's done is built up a gigantic disinformation machine that's funded to a significant degree, employs an army of different trolls, influencers, and others that works to both put out government propaganda, essentially falsehoods that reflect and reinforce a government narrative, whether it is saying how great the war on drugs currently is in the Philippines, or talking about all the positive, excellent things that Duterte has done, but also then specifically disparages, intimidates, and harasses anyone who would challenge Duterte. That can be politicians who have subsequently been arrested. That can be journalists like Maria Ressa, who have questioned significantly you know, the outcomes of Duterte's war on drugs. But anyone who sort of would face the ire of Duterte or who would be viewed as a political threat to him or his, his political cronies are then systematically disparaged, harassed, and intimidated online. And that then morphs to offline actions that occur as well. And so that to me was pretty interesting because it shows that something that really starts with just manipulating information, right, that is very much something occurring in the virtual world can actually end up having real-world political governance effects and then real-world effects in terms of how repression is enacted in a country that, you know, more or less has been democratic for many years. That's a really interesting case. So in some sense, you could say he's gone from a situation where you might be playing defense. In other words, you're trying to, um, in some sense, identify your critics to really going on offense in terms of overwhelming the messaging environment with the counter messages that in some ways drowned out the critics as much. And then at the same time, you're rounding them up. So in other words, you're playing traditional defense as an autocrat, but you're also shaping the whole messaging environment at the same time in a a very systematic way. That's an element of it I think many people would not be aware of other than, well, I think we've seen a good deal of that in the United States as well the last four or five years. So if we're kind of looking at this issue globally, what are the implications for democratic governance going forward? In other words, how do we, you know, how is this countered in societies like the Philippines, if you want to use that as an example, where, you know, maybe the news media is weak or maybe the news media is itself a target and therefore is not you know, able to counter effectively that kind of a messaging campaign? Yeah, it's a really good question. In fact, what's interesting, too, is that not only has Duterte kind of set up this online disinformation machine, But he also has done a really important job of disassembling traditional media networks as well, taking away their licenses. And so, you know, the goal is to both take over the Internet in terms of communications and really set the narrative that they want, but then to make sure that any viable challengers, either online or through radio or television broadcasting, is also undermined as well. 
the challenging thing with this is that there isn't sort of a magic bullet solution, right, in terms of how you deal with Duterte. I mean, I think ultimately a lot of it depends on building up networks on the ground, working with citizens, both in terms of digital literacy, but also trying to find other ways to push back politically against a regime that remains extremely popular and yet, you know, is popular for many of the wrong reasons. But when it comes to a country like the Philippines, there aren't any sort of ready-made solutions. Otherwise, I think we would have sort of seen those happen. I think a lot of it's going to be good old-fashioned politicking and trying to find creative ways to showcase to the extent that people are willing to listen all the different ways that the, the Duterte government is failing them. You know, the human rights violations that are taking place, corruption that's endemic, and so on and so forth. But I mean, that's kind of the challenge that, you know, we haven't sort of cracked the code when it comes to how do you actually counter against, especially when it comes to disinformation, how do you push back against it? And I think we're grappling with that in the United States, frankly, uh, in terms of the kind of conservative disinformation machine linked to Trump, as much as we sort of see this as an issue that the Philippines is grappling with, or that Erdogan in Turkey has been able to manipulate and exploit, or Bonn in Hungary has been able to do. I mean, this is really in a liberal phenomenon that we see in many countries around the world. And when you're looking at democracies today, and we're sort of thinking about this use of this technology in a context in which liberal democracy, as you could say, is under assault, I think I'm correct in saying that only 10% of the world's population currently lives under true liberal democracies. Beyond that, <laughs> that 10%, what does the other 90% look like in terms of you know, maintaining sort of democratic practice even nominally or reasonably well? In other words, what's the world's population, what kind of regimes are they living under today where these techniques are being used? So to categorize them across the other 90%. Yeah, no, it's so it's a mixture of sort of three kind of broad categories beyond liberal democracies. And this is kind of rough, but it's what I've kind of used as a way to, to kind of help to sort of break down political systems. So your next categories are what political scientists call electoral democracies, but you can just think of those as weak democracies. They're democracies that you have regular elections, you have a lot of the necessary rules in place when it comes to enacting the rule of law, having a, a working legislator, legislature, and so forth. But you have certain deficiencies that are also there. You might have, for example, an extraordinarily strong executive branch. You might have elections that are not free and fair, that end up getting biased because of, of journalist content. You might have uh, opposition parties that are persecuted by the ruling party when they're in power. And so you have a pretty wide range of countries. You have countries like India, which are large democracies. Most people consider them to be a democracy, and yet they are also suffering from a very strong liberal streak. So that's the kind of weak democracy bucket. And that's a large number of countries, probably like about, you know, a little under 40%. Then you have your next category kind of on the other side of weak democracies are competitive autocracies. So unlike China, these are countries like Uganda, some, a lot of people would say Turkey, Pakistan, where they ostensibly hold elections. They're very far from being fair elections, but people still get a chance to vote. Iraq's another good example. You have such deficiencies in your governance that you know, it really is impossible to say they're democracies, but yet people still have the ability to participate on occasion on certain issues in a sort of somewhat consistent fashion. So things are not totalitarian. They're not locked down. There's not total control over the information environment. But for all intents and purposes behind the scenes, they're authoritarian. And so that's the kind of next category. 
And then finally, kind of your counterpart to liberal democracies on the authoritarian side would be closed authoritarian systems. And that's really your Tajikistan's, your China's, your, your North Korea's, where, you know, really there is not even the, the pretense of elections when environments are truly closed, beset by censorship. And that's where, you know, you see the kind of most insidious examples, not only of digital repression, but also political repression generally take place. And as you look at this world across those different four categories, were you seeing these patterns pretty much present everywhere or, you know, in certain states with certain levels of technical sophistication, or is it pretty much becoming universalized now? Both you know, they, they the very vary. simplest level of just rewriting the law in terms of access to technology or controlling the sort of the, the access to the web itself or getting more sophisticated about it. They vary quite a bit. So, the, I mean, the golden rule when it comes to digital repression is that the more authoritarian you are, the more likely you are to rely on these tools. The kind of adjunct to that is that author- all authoritarians, they repress, they digitally repress, but they do so in their own ways, right? They do so in very different combinations. So China is very unique in terms of how it's brought together at an unprecedented level of sophistication, all types of different methods of surveillance and censorship, having a great firewall and having just real control over what citizens are able to access and what citizens are able to say. Now, that actually varies very considerably from what you would see in Russia, where you are seeing a greater amount of control on the internet, but there's still a pretty freewheeling, open environment, at least online, when it comes to what citizens are able to put out. So, for example, you know, Navalny's recent YouTube video that's been viewed over 100 million times, where he exposes Putin's corruption, you even see his hidden dacha. It's like this glorious palace that has been essentially built through corrupt money, right? Broadcasting a video like that would be impossible in the China context. Now, I think all of us can agree that China and Russia are authoritarian systems. And yet you see very quickly that for the Russians, bringing about much, relying much more on disinformation is part of their method of digital control, plus the targeted persecution of people like Navalny, who is now serving a prison sentence, Whereas in China, it's full control all the time, have a great firewall, and in fact, don't even allow Western platforms like YouTube, which operates in Russia, to operate in China. Instead, have your own kind of indigenous companies that you can control through your own legal and political mechanisms. And so that just shows you that tools vary quite a bit from one authoritarian country to another. The other thing I would also say, too, is that technological resources matter. So a country like the, you know, like Kenya, or even, you know, take a, take a country like Zimbabwe, right? You know, obviously authoritarian would certainly like to do much more of what China is able to do in terms of tracking and watching threats to the ruling regime, but doesn't have the, the technological sophistication to do so, doesn't have the resources to be able to do that. So, and, and what they end up doing is kind of borrowing some aspects or picking sort of cheaper solutions like internet shutdowns or throttling when there's demonstrations. You just cut off the internet rather than trying to control it preemptively the way China would do. That's kind of the difference that you see based on the, the level of sophistication of these countries. Yeah, so the tactics are a little bit cruder, I guess, in those Zimbabwe case than they would be in China where they've got the, the cutting edge technologies. If we're thinking a little bit about where this goes over the next decade, in other words, we're thinking about the technological frontier because the technology is changing as, as fast as these conversations are happening about it. What do you see as the new frontier that, you know, we'll be dealing with, say, five years from now? Yeah. Well, I think one of the trends that we're seeing is that 
and this has been sort of accelerated by the coronavirus uh, pandemic, is that more and more people are conducting all sorts of business online, whether it's business transactions, meetings, e-commerce, communications with relatives, socializing, right? There's just been sort of mass migration and greater reliance on using digital life. And so what that also means is that there's so much more data out there and information about citizen preferences, about their political choices, as it relates to their, the kind of speech that they give. And so certainly if you are an authoritarian country and you're saying, well, I want to get as much information I can about popular sentiment, in particular to understand better who might be a threat in the future to challenging my regime, trying to better mine this data, trying to find new programs that are able to kind of both sift through millions of terabytes of information and then derive patterns that can sort of help figure out what networks are forming or what types of rhetoric are, is occurring that, you know, something that represents a challenge. That's kind of the next frontier about where things are going. And so, you know, kind of broadly speaking, we could put this under a category of artificial intelligence or big data analysis. And that's something that China has invested heavily in using deep learning algorithms and other sorts of techniques to really, you know, find a way to look through millions of communications and sift out what is relevant and what is, you know, what is noise and doesn't matter. And to the extent that you can have algorithms that are able to more specifically hone in on the types of speech or the individuals that matter, I think the more that does offer a degree of control that hasn't been available before in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think this whole area of AI, that's where I was going with that question, is kind of interesting to think a little bit about all the ways it could be used. I mean, the deep data processing and the acceleration that can provide to the way one's managing all that data is, is quite extraordinary. When we think about that with AI now, actually, in an application, though, as it's processing a lot of this kind of data for other purposes, even in, in liberal democracies, there's all this sort of all kinds of biases built in and potential for errors around identification of people and so forth. I suppose that debate isn't even being had right now about the appropriateness of using this kind of technology for that sort of surveillance. There's all sorts of ethical questions around the use of this. Is, is there any debate about AI and this sort of surveillance, on this sort of surveillance, even within liberal democracies and how it's being used? In other words, why couldn't that same thing be happening in the non-autocratic states where it sort of seems somewhat benign, but actually could be used in different ways, given a change in leadership, let's say? Yeah, no, I think it's, there's a huge debate happening in democracies. Absolutely. And so let's take something like, you know, facial recognition or kind of more advanced surveillance along those lines. I mean, what you've actually seen, part of the pushback is about bias in terms of false positives, people who are identified in certain areas who actually weren't there, but you have bad algorithms. I mean, that's part of the issue. I think part of the bigger question that we're seeing in liberal democracies is where does control the state end? And are the right safeguards in place so that people's privacy is protected to some degree. And so what we've seen is certain jurisdictions, particularly in the US and in Europe, the banning of facial recognition cameras in places like Cambridge, Massachusetts, or Berkeley, and broader calls for moratoriums on the use of these technologies until we actually have better rules of the road in place in terms of when law enforcement can or should be able to access facial recognition when they're trying to figure out who was at the scene of a crime and when are they going too far in a people's personal information that that's something that that's not acceptable. I think that that kind of debate is really coming to the fore. And I think Europe in particular, fortunately, is really leading the way in terms of trying to put together a privacy framework that's actionable 
that can put in place the right guardrails for how this technology ought to be used by governments and by companies and where there ought to be limitations. I think, unfortunately, in the United States, we tend to have this sort of innovation first, regulate second kind of mentality, which can be good in that we want to have companies that are innovative, that are kind of able to push the boundaries in terms of the products that they put together. But at the same time, you know, it also leads for lots of perverse outcomes. And it leads to things like Facebook massively exploiting people's data for very sort of shaky reasons related to ad sales. While the U.S. lags, I think it's going to eventually kind of catch up to some degree with what Europe's doing. And that's a good thing. And, and you know, across liberal democracies, I think we should all be encouraged that there's these sharper debates happening. I guess that does leave the question, well, what about China and its billion plus people? Or what about India, which is also kind of, you know, starting more and more to come on as a liberal path without probably having the right amount of debate about how these sorts of tools are being used? I mean, you add those two countries up and their populations, and you're already looking at over two and a half billion people who are going to be governed by, you know, very loose regulations in terms of abuse. Yeah, so we're ripe for this ethical discussion, I would say. Let me turn for a moment to um, the political side of all of this, maybe kick it off with this term that you use in your book, which is, uh, I think, very intriguing, the digital dictator's dilemma. Rather than try to define it myself, let me let you do it because it's at the core of kind of your, your book. And as you talk about some of the other case studies, I think it's a really helpful kind of paradox to kind of frame for us. So the, the issue with the term dictator's digital dilemma is essentially that there are trade-offs involved when countries decide that they want to enact greater digital controls, that it's not a completely level landscape and that you can continue controlling, exercising you know, different types of surveillance and censorship and not face any economic repercussions. With the digital dictator's dilemma, essentially, there's a balance between, on the one hand, asserting a significant amount of control on dissent online, while at the same time ensuring that you're not clamping down too much on technology and innovation so that you undermine your own economy. And this is a choice that a lot of countries like Thailand, which are authoritarian, but also have a large amount of FDI, you know, foreign direct investment, and you know, international companies based in Bangkok, it's an issue that they face constantly. And one example I mentioned in the book is that in Thailand, the military regime at the time, a few years back, was contemplating putting in place a single internet gateway, which essentially would be one node that would filter out all information going into the country and out of the country. So it would give the Thai government an unprecedented amount of control over what people were saying and what information came in and out of the country. Now, obviously, there are huge implications with that politically and economically. And so what you immediately saw was pushback from the middle class and from even from many of the elites. And the pushback wasn't the political freedoms issue. They weren't worried that the Thai government would censor what they were going to read, nearly to the degree that they were worried that this would quash economic growth in the country and force foreign companies to relocate to other areas like Singapore, where they would have more of a reliable business environment. And so in the face of these sort of mass protests that started to erupt from the middle class saying, what are you doing here? You're, you're going to tank our economy. The Thai regime relented and just threw away the idea completely. And that illustrates in kind of a nutshell, this very delicate balance that many countries, particularly sort of medium-sized countries face between wanting to assert more control, but also not wanting to scare off economic investment innovation in their countries. So there really is kind of a balance of power question kind of that each of these leaders face. And 
maybe the question here is, is technology transforming the ability of autocrats to keep their populations in check or just how much impact are the digital tools bringing to authoritarian regimes? Yeah. One of my kind of underlying arguments is that digital repression is premised upon political repression, like just general use of security agencies and intelligence agencies in terms of enacting repressive methods. And so what that means is that I think in countries that already have sophisticated security forces, where they have a high capacity for cohesive command and control to enact their repressive objectives, technology, when combined with that existing apparatus, can be extremely potent in terms of allowing for unprecedented degrees of manipulation and repression in those contexts. And so, you know, China, North Korea, more and more Russia to some extent are places where as technologies advance and as newer techniques come to play, because they have the security systems already in place, that's really a a cocktail that can make for a pretty chilling environment in terms of the transformational effect that technologies will have. But in many other uh, countries, most other countries, I would say, that have, you know, relatively ramshackle security forces, places where, you know, they don't have that much capacity or discipline is not great. That's where technology can help to some degree, but it's not going to be an overwhelming difference maker. You know, you're not going to all of a sudden see overnight a country like Zambia or Kenya go from having certain aspects that are repressive through the importation of technology being completely and overwhelmingly Orwellian in terms of what they're able to do. It's just not going to happen that way. Technology enhances what's there, but it doesn't sort of bring about a wholesale change in the security environment. You need people on the ground and a structure and organization that can actually implement these objectives in order for this to be something that's more transformational than than what you'd otherwise see. So Steve, you mentioned so far the Philippines and Thailand, but really anchoring your book, you have this really nice sort of comparative element at the core of the book, where you're looking at Thailand, Ethiopia, and the Philippines as unique cases. And it's interesting, you know, you didn't pick the obvious or Russia and China cases, which, you know, other people probably will do on this topic. You pick emergent economies, but with, you know, varying kinds of, you know, autocratic regimes. What was it that persuaded you to pick these three cases? And what's unique about each of them? What, how did this part of the book, which is you know, very core to your kind of argument, how did that part of it come together? And the, yeah. that selection, why was that selection made? No, you're right. I mean, I really, one of the goals of the book was to sort of look at the rest of the world to kind of get beyond the kind of Russia-China paradigm, which I think in, some, in many respects are so unique in terms of what they mean. And so, so they asked the question, well, as we look at a broader trend around the world, can we derive some lessons that apply more broadly to countries that are sort of more in the middle or countries that are sort of swing states that could go in either direction. Like I wanted to kind of better understand on the ground what these trends would mean, particularly in kind of more relatively understudied contexts. And so, you know, the three countries I picked are three countries that are all a little bit different in terms of what they bring. So Thailand was kind of more of the classic authoritarian country where you, when I was there, they had just had an election to try to transition away from a military junta. But for all intents and purposes, it's not a democratic country by any means. You know, the elections are rigged. The military monarchy establishment that's in power has been in power for generations. And the idea that people have a real voice in changing politics is pretty limited. So that was sort of one end that I thought was an important context. The Philippines was the other end where you have a sort of failing or faltering democracy at the moment. But yet you still have an environment that's completely different than Thailand. You don't have the same concern about everything you say 
that might, you know, might be surveilled and you'll have door knocks in the middle of the night based on communications you had earlier in the day that you just have, generally speaking, a much longer tradition of democracy that's been at work. And so I wanted to see how these technologies were playing out in that kind of environment in order to compare and contrast. And then Ethiopia was really interesting because it's kind of, it's very dynamic right now. It's shifting in a whole host of ways. And it went, at least when I was there, from being a very classic authoritarian lockdown country to one under Abbey where a lot of liberalization was taking root. And so trying to document that transformation was something I thought was really interesting and important to do. So it was sort of more in the middle. What we've seen, you know, as a quick postscript to Ethiopia in the last, you know, nine to 12 months has been a real reversion back to the uh, kind of authoritarian tendencies that had beset the country over the last decades. And with Abiy, what many had thought would be kind of a, a potential reformer or an opening, I think a lot are now disillusioned in terms of where things are going. So it looks a little different now than it did even a year ago, but there's still a lot of uh, transformation, a lot of different things that are shaping in the country. So are there any particular stories or interviews from that field work that surprised you actually were on the ground in all three places. So are there any particular sort of elements in any of those three countries that were kind of surprising in terms of their particular idiosyncratic use of these techniques? Yeah. So one example that really kind of was interesting, one story uh, was in Ethiopia. I remember I met with an opposition activist, a person named Jawar Muhammad, who actually is in jail currently for a number of possibly dubious reasons. And I remember meeting him in his kind of compound on the outskirts of the capital city and just kind of getting to a point where I could even set up the meeting was very difficult. I had, I essentially had sort of chased him around for most of the day. We, he kept sort of setting up meeting times for us and then they would, they would sort of, we'd lose them. So finally we ended up going to his kind of home compound. You know, I remember kind of sitting in a, in a room for like an hour and a half waiting around until my interview would finally come up. And at a certain point getting a little bit worried that, the interview wouldn't happen and it was getting late and I had to catch the plane later that night, but I finally sat down with him. And, you know, I remember this conversation was so vivid in my mind because here was someone who was kind of a, almost like a larger in life figure, particularly in, in Ethiopian politics. And I remember talking to him about internet shutdowns. And what was interesting, you know, I said, well, in the face of such an asymmetric advantage that the government had, how were you able to kind of push back against these tactics? And I remember what he said to me was, was that we had to find a way to innovate better than what the government was able to do. If the government shut down the internet, that couldn't just be the end of it. So what we would end up doing is we relied on our network that was already in place. We would smuggle out footage. The government does, uh, you know, quashes a protest. We take footage, we smuggle it out through a network, we put it out in Kenya, and we broadcast it to the world. And I thought what was really just fascinating is that he kind of showed that oftentimes when we look at technology, we think it's like an arms race when it comes to who can have the most sophisticated, the better amount of technology, whether it's, you know, civic activist groups or the government, but oftentimes reverting back to more traditional forms of organizing and ways to kind of use your network of individuals to push out and counteract government repression can be just as effective. And I thought that to me, that was something that really kind of stood out, you know, as I was sort of sitting with Jawar and kind of trying to understand better how he had approached his whole idea of activism. So when you looked at these three countries, were there other countries you considered where there were some, you know, if you'd had more time and you wanted to kind of get into kind of some particular issues that emerged overall across the three cases you might have wanted to do for some reason or other? Yeah, there's, a, there's you know, there's a whole host of countries that are sort of on my mind. A couple of them, I've named them 
sort of earlier, but that I think are just so relevant. I mean, I think India is a place where so much is at stake in terms of being a country that does have a very strong democratic tradition, is absolutely vital in terms of its economic and political role in the world. And that frankly is staking out kind of an independent position that is both trying to counter and push back against China, but also is reluctant to really follow more of a liberal democratic model that Europe and the US is pushing. So it's charting its own ground. Under Modi, you ha- you're having this kind of renewed sense of illiberalism. You know, India is a country that leads the world in internet shutdowns. It's a country where they're increasingly experimenting with mass surveillance, and yet it still has a large degree of openness. So that is one place where, you know, I would like to kind of do more work to see more about where things are going. Turkey is another place where I think, you know, you're really seeing some new innovations take place when it comes to what Erdogan is enacting, especially when it comes to trying to control social media. And Turkey matters, I think, to a great deal, really become a regional power, you know, in terms of kind of dictating and influencing its will in a variety of places, particularly in Eurasia and the Middle East, and seeing kind of how that evolves in the context, I think, will be really important. So those are two places that kind of came to mind in, in terms of countries to watch. So I'm going to circle back to China for a minute, and you've, you've touched on it in a couple of your comments so far. I, maybe sort of two questions. One is, what is China doing maybe in the extreme that should worry the rest of the world? In other words, in terms of how, you know, they've got this very comprehensive and, and very highly centralized approach. But maybe more importantly, what role is China playing outside of its own borders, perhaps, in exporting digital repression techniques that it's using at home to the Ethiopias of the world, where it has a very large presence, actually? And maybe other countries that are participating in the broader Belt and Road Initiative, where these techniques might be attractive. Is that something that's part of a, one could say, maybe part of a foreign policy package? Yeah, China is a really really interesting and and really just sort of tough case to think about. I would say, you know, just generally speaking, what worries me about China is that it really is setting up an alternate system, especially from a technological perspective. You know, you have very few Western companies, especially when it comes to like internet giants that are able to operate there. So you have its own kind of walled garden ecosystem that's developed. And that presents a real challenge to kind of the idea of an open, free interoperable internet that you would see around the world. Not only that, but then China is modeling its behavior more broadly. It's sort of allowing and giving ideas for countries about how to implement their own sovereignty and regulations to control information. And so you're seeing a proliferation sort of forms of this model of internet control. And I think that's very dangerous because you see so many countries look at it like Nigeria and say, wait a second, you know, we don't have to sort of just be criticized by activists online. We can ban Twitter and we can even hold meetings with the Chinese information ministry to think about how we create our own firewall. And so that kind of modeling behavior, I think, effect is really kind of happening. Now, in the book, I really explore kind of more specifically this idea of digital authoritarianism, you know, whether China is specifically pushing technologies onto other governments in order to help them enact repression. And so the answer there is a little mixed. So on the one hand, I didn't find a lot of evidence that the driving factors for why a country would choose to implement surveillance or censorship, a direct result of Chinese intervention. I found that many other incentives on the ground play a much more important role. Political factors, the nature of the challenges at play, and the strength of security forces and intelligence forces that they already have. And so when I asked different individuals in Ethiopia, for example, to what extent is China directly driving 
your adoption of different digital repression techniques? The answer was pretty skeptical. Uh, they say very little. You know, there are many other factors. And by the way, you know, the Chinese aren't the only ones providing this, these kind of techniques to us also. The United States providing surveillance, countries in Europe, Israel. And so the idea that China has a monopoly on providing this technology, I think, has been you know, overstated. But what China is doing is that it is establishing infrastructure that gives it kind of more of a structural advantage in terms of how countries buy into Chinese tech. And Chinese tech is inherently oriented towards allowing government control of information via surveillance and censorship. And so to that extent, when you see ZTE or Huawei or others you know, put in place 5G networks or build ICT networks that are then used by governments, there can be over time, I think, a lean towards a Beijing model of technological governance that is worrisome in terms of wanting to see a more open system be put in place. So that's a kind of complicated way to ask, answer kind of a, yeah, yeah. a, a straightforward yeah. question, but it's a complicated terrain. I think it's fair to say, I think your comment about, you know, other countries also participating a bit in this competing in some sense with China on distributing technology is probably something we should be aware of as well. I have to believe that you're fascinated watching Hong Kong as it's being uh, transformed by Beijing currently and how this, the role of technology is playing itself out there. Are there any things that as a kind of more astute observer of this phenomenon than the rest of us? that you're observing in the way that transformation is taking place? Yeah. And the way the technology is being used by both China and also those resisting the efforts of Beijing to kind of change governance in Hong Kong? Yeah, no, I know. I have a personal relationship to Hong Kong. My mother was born in Hong Kong, and I had gone back and forth to Hong Kong many times when I was growing up. And I even went to Hong Kong for this book, just to sort of a jumping off point. So I thought a lot about Hong Kong and the situation. And, you know, I'll say, first of all, I think, the battle, the struggle is mostly done at this point. I think if there was a question a year, two years ago about whether there would be an ability for citizens to push back and really what we saw, you know, millions on the street, the umbrella movement, you know, like I, I think, which was really heartening. I think that has basically been crushed. And I think what's actually interesting with Hong Kong was that I would say the nature of repression in Hong Kong and the kind of difference maker has not been technology so much as the passage of a national security law that has enabled authorities to crack down as they would like, both online and offline, to the point where anyone, including kind of Apple Daily, which has just announced a shutdown a couple of days ago, that anyone with a dissenting viewpoint has essentially been run out of town or been locked up in jail or is facing a trial. I think it shows you that at the end of the day, if you are willing to kind of push forward your method of repression, at all costs, using traditional methods really pay off. And the one interesting thing, we had talked about the digital dictator's dilemma, right? In terms of, you know, the trade-off. Well, you know, one, I think you are seeing flight from Hong Kong. And I think over the long-term, Hong Kong's ability to kind of be a premier economic center is gonna be severely compromised. But two, China doesn't really care that much. They're willing to see that happen. They know one, they know they have a big enough market that they can withstand some of that. And that too, even if Hong Kong loses its sort of preeminence, it's not going to really change Shanghai or Beijing in terms of, you know, the, the money that circulates there and the interest of Western companies in continuing to do business with such a lucrative market. And so in that sense, China is the exception to the digital dictator's dilemma, you know, to that rule that otherwise plays out in countries like Thailand. 
this is kind of the beginning of a little bit of a conversation on the re active resistance to these techniques. So maybe picking up a little bit on what you were talking about earlier in terms of Russia and how it's a little bit more, it's a very different story in Russia. And you've got the Navalny case uh, and you've got a little bit more of a freewheeling kind of use of the internet or at least available. You've got YouTube. If we talk about a little bit about active resistance to these techniques in different locations, and we were to start with Russia, what do we see there in terms of what the Navalny people are doing in order to kind of keep to some degree some oxygen in their, in their movement, despite Putin's efforts to really try to shut it down? Well, you know, with Russia, what has happened so far is that there are certain, you know, Russian authorities are very cognizant of public opinion, and public opinion matters probably a little more to kind of Putin's political survival than it would in the same way in a place like China. There's a little more sensitivity to that. And one of the things that's important to the you know, Russian authorities is that there are certain platforms that are kind of more touchable in terms of being able to suspend them without having public backlash. But there are certain platforms, YouTube in particular, that are so popular among the general population that they have to be very careful about the extent to which they are able to shut down or control what these platforms show. And so that's something that for now, you know, Navalny's folks have been able to kind of exploit, you know, this idea that certain platforms, certain technologies are so widely used in Russia that Putin doesn't want to push too far lest he gets, he gets kind of blowback. So instead, what Putin is doing is don't necessarily shut down YouTube, but try to find legal means, use lawfare to shut down Navalny's organization you know, target them in terms of their finances, target them in terms of whether they're actually authorized legally to operate. And so that it is that tactic. And then, of course, jail, you know, and under completely spurious charges, you know, the leading people who are challenges to Putin. And, you know, if you don't want to jail them, maybe use assassination as a tool as well. You know, there's been a bit of a cat and mouse struggle in Russia. I fear, uh, especially based on a project I'm working on, with some colleagues in Carnegie's Moscow Center, that we're seeing less of a pushback, but more of a wave that's slowly going to collapse and stifle out most of the dissent and the pushback that we've seen thus far. I don't feel very optimistic, you know, in terms of, of Russia, but I do feel, you know, in other contexts that there is a lot more of an ability for people to push back. You know, I would highlight a group like Bellingcat as one example of the type of good that a digital organization can play. What Bellingcat does, and actually they've been really, you know, they've kind of kept putting Putin on his back foot at times, is that they use open source intelligence, social media feeds, pictures that are posted online to reconstruct pretty meticulously different assassination attempts, shootings, other sorts of things that governments undertake as a way to expose their corruption or to expose their abuses. And so there's been poisonings that Putin has ordered, for example, that Bellingcat has been able to kind of meticulously point out which Russian operatives were responsible, what their names are, what units they're potentially part of, part of the FSB or so forth. And that level of transparency, forced transparency, I think really matters, especially to weaker regimes that don't have a good way of pushing back against this kind of information. So we're talking now a little bit about outsmarting the dictator, as it were, and Belling the Cat is, I think, a good example. Are there other groups like that that uh, you might call global watchdog groups that are really aiding this resistance, um, that are kind of paying attention to this and thinking about sort of strategies that are enabling groups to push back? Yeah, there's a number of them. And, and that's what I think is just so, 
you know, I think heartening about what's happening. So let's take something like the Panama Papers, which essentially represented a, a leaked trove of many terabytes of information related to the money laundering of political leaders from around the world. You know, again, without kind of living in a digital era where journals were able to access this kind of information. I mean, think about this from 30 or 40 years ago. Would we have ever been able to penetrate Swiss bank accounts back then and to know you know, the type of secret accounts, secret money laundering that was taking place in the Congo as a result of siphon, you know, oil deals or timber deals, like probably unlikely. And so, you know, that's another example of where journalists associations, digital forensics can really play a role. I'll give you another example. If you think about types of atrocities that have taken place anywhere from Syria to Ethiopia to Sudan, you know, one of the things the tools were able to take advantage of now that wasn't available in the past was to actually use through smartphones and other means to document what occurred and to then later on reconstruct the nature of these atrocities in order to ascribe accountability for individuals who committed those acts. So if that means taking cell phone footage from 300 or 1,000 smartphones, which has happened uh, in a particular massacre that occurred in Sudan, after the internet was shut down and to then put splice that footage into a coherent whole and to use different identification techniques to actually ID individuals who were shooting weapons against demonstrators. That's something, that's a level of accountability that we could have only dreamed of 30, 40 years ago when it came to war crimes. And so that's just another example of how digital forensics, civic activism, and the use of these tools can actually push back, you know, sort of what they call watching the watchers in a way that's profoundly important when it comes to the evolution of human rights protections. You're giving us some new vocabulary, digital forensics and watching watchers. I love it. This is great. That's why books like this are important. So democratic societies, one would wonder or think that, you know, governments like the United States that, you know, pride themselves on championing human rights and championing civil society and and dynamic debate would be concerned about this and actively trying to promote democratic practice and good use of technology. Are, Are democratic societies really doing anything to play a role in this? Or are they kind of watching from the sidelines, worried, but not quite sure what to do? I'm seeing more and more momentum occur, both in the United States, also in Europe, in the UK, which I think is a really good thing. You know, I I would point to, you know, just a few weeks ago, we had the G7 summit. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that was written in the communique. Two things really stuck out to me, one of which is there was a really strong statement about internet shutdowns that the G7 members put together, basically condemning them across the board. A second thing they put in the G7 communique, you know, which is really like a high level political document, so they oftentimes don't get the technical issues, was talking about the importance of protecting an open, free, interoperable, reliable, secure internet. You know, again, these sort of, these kind of core fundamental ideas when it comes to how liberal values ought to work with technology. And so I think both of those things, that's just one example, but what we're seeing in the months ahead, the Biden administration is going to organize a summit for democracy. That's an opportunity to bring about a greater amount of consensus among like-minded countries about at least basic rules or principles in terms of how technology ought to be used in a responsible way by governments and citizens to promote accountability and political participation. So I think that there is momentum happening. It's been a struggle to kind of get there. And I think there are a lot of thornier questions where 
the U.S. and other countries are less willing to weigh in on, particularly when it comes to disinformation and political disinformation. And that in part reflects our own polarized politics. But I think the more we can at least agree on sort of minimal rules for what is the right way to approach responsibility when it comes to tech, I think the better off we'll be. And I, I do think, especially with the Biden administration, that is starting to happen to a much higher degree now. Well, you brought in the Biden administration is there, you know, on that broader issue of you know, trying to promote openness and better rules. Is there anything else that they should be doing either both as well domestically as well as internationally in terms of fostering the right environments for this sort of thing? Yeah, I think there are um, two to three things that are really important that they need to tackle. I mean, we can, and, and I would say, but, you know, let's focus on the domestic for a second. So one is platform accountability, getting a handle on disinformation. I mean, what we've seen right now is completely spiral out of control. You know, we had an insurrection that occurred as a result of violent incitement. We've seen the proliferation of such amount of hate speech, conspiracy theories that, you know, it's really calling into question kind of basic notions of free expression and whether the harms are becoming so great that we need to have a rebalancing of how we understand what kind of speech and what kind of harmful content results. That kind of serious debate has really been impossible to have so far, but it needs to happen. So that would be one thing. I think second, uh, you know, you have a lot of emerging technologies. We talked about facial recognition. You know, there's also these sort of different kind of big data, police predictive analytics. And there are very few rules right now about, you know, what are the limitations to how they're used? Uh, what is appropriate conduct when it comes to law enforcement? And what represents an abuse? Those rules ought to be in place and at least some basic guidelines need, needs to be put in. A final thing, is having a privacy framework. Europe has had GDPR for a number of years. It's not perfect, but at least it's something. In the United States, there's not even basic privacy protections offered to users. And so, you know, platforms can exploit user information as they'd like, monetize it, sell it off. And there's no way for consumers to really push back. As a basic step, we ought to have some kind of privacy framework in the United States. So it raises some interesting questions about what's the role of the private sector going forward on this? Do they have, we've kind of given them a kind of a, a free pass card for, you know, innovate, innovate, innovate. But, you know, our innovation to some degree could, you could say to some degree could be backfiring on us if, you know, some of these things get out of control. And I mean, to the simple point about privacy protections, I mean, that's the big battle being waged in Europe, I think somewhat intelligently, but here we're having a very hard time even getting that kind of a conversation going. We're still looking at these many of these uh, systems as major marketing platforms where making money is the is more preeminent than the protection of individual freedom and privacy. It seems like we have a lot of work to do. And does it mean that ultimately we have to regulate? It would be one thing to have rules where it's their voluntary principles. And having been in the State Department, you've dealt a lot with voluntary principles <laughs> and you know how far they get you. So where are you between voluntary principles and regulation on, on this and given how serious it is? Yeah, I, it's a great point. Look, I think we need real regulation. I don't think we're going to get there by just sort of hoping that companies will do the right thing or sort of, you know, tacitly encouraging them. I think we've had a decade that sort of, you know, asked Facebook and others to sort of clean up their act. And I think we're in a, a pretty bad place at the moment. I think certainly the idea that we would get to a heavy regulated kind of state intervention is not a place that's necessarily any of us want to get to. I mean, it'll stifle innovation. It can be cumbersome and unwieldy. Technology tends to move much more quickly than kind of legal structures. So you want to have something that's nimble and flexible enough that it allows for innovation to occur while still having the weight of enforcement so that as abuses take root, they can actually be rectified. Right now, we don't have that enforcement 
framework in any kind of way. And so instead, what we have is this, you know, proliferation of the surveillance, capitalism, exploitation of user data without any way to push back uh, from individual perspective. And so the system is out of whack and we need to find a way to rebalance it. And so through a combination of regulation, voluntary moves by private companies and just building greater consensus politically about the right way forward, that's how I hope we can get there. That's a tough order. Yes, indeed. So, Steve, compliments to you, because I think this book is very prophetic, and I think it's very timely. It's really been exciting to talk about it. Maybe just as to close, I mean, you know, on balance, as you look at the, the opportunities and the challenges going forward, are you optimistic or pessimistic? You know, who's winning in this battle, and uh, where do you sort of come out? What's the bottom line? I mean, I think you know, despite the kind of grim subject matter of the book, I'm somewhat of an optimist by nature, and I do think that we will find ways forward. I, I think we're especially at a moment right now where there seems to be enough political will in democracies to take a serious concerted attempt to grapple with the, some of the bigger problems, as well as to come together and put out common solutions that can really serve as a counterweight to the authoritarian vision and ideas that, Ch that China's and Russia's the world are putting out. I think there are many positive steps that people, policymakers are talking about in the coming months and years that if done right, with the right kind of consultation in an inclusive manner, can actually lead to a lot of good and reverse some of the worst effects that we've seen. You know, I don't have holding illusions. It's going to be easy or it's not going to you know, be beset or fraught by you know, sharp debates. But I do think that we can find ways forward by doing the work, by putting in the energy and the time to grapple with the right solution. So you know, I, I want to leave it on that note and not on a pessimistic note. I think that's important for all of us. Great. So, Steve, once again, congratulations on the book. I, as I said a moment ago, I think it, it is really prophetic. And I think it's really has a it will be a book, I think, that will be read by the, the civil society community and the democracy activists who are, I think, have been really troubled by, in some sense, living this experience and trying to, you know, actively resist it and preserve democratic practice and, and civil society space for democratic institutions in many of the societies around the world. So I think it's a contribution to our discussion here in the United States, as well as globally within the civil society and human rights democracy universe. Once again, congratulations. The book is entitled The Rise of Digital Repression by Steve Felstein. It's published by Oxford University Press. You can find it on Amazon or at your favorite independent bookstore. For listeners who'd like to read more of Steve's work on this topic, you can visit pulte.nd.edu slash Felstein. And Steve, thanks very much for being with us today and for helping us all understand a bit more about this topic of digital repression. For more episodes of the Global Pathways podcast, visit pulte.nd.edu slash Global Pathways podcast, where you can stream or subscribe to a variety of different online platforms. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and I'll see you next time. Additional support for the Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser comes from the University of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs, home to the Pulte Institute and other global institutes, centers, and programs. As Notre Dame's first new college or school in nearly a century, the Keough School places development at the heart of global affairs. Learn more at nd.edu slash global affairs.